Hello everyone, I hope you are doing well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen and I want to welcome you to our Futurist Blue podcast, a place to discuss about Europe's economic and policy-related challenges. And this is a Funcas Europe and Agenda Publica initiative. And we hope we can bring in new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. So today we're here to talk about a new start, a new relationship between the EU and the UK after Brexit. Because yes, Brexit really happened after more than four years of round-the-clock negotiations between the two sides. And since January 1st, both parties are cooperating under a new uh, framework, that is the withdrawal agreement and the free trade deal. So today we're joined by Jill Rutter, who covers Brexit at UK in a changing Europe, and she's as well a visiting professor at King's College London. Thank you for joining us, Jill. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Great. Uh, and in fact, Jill is, is talking to us from uh, London, and I am based in Brussels. And I'm going to now welcome Raymond Torres, who a voice you, you may be familiar with. He's a Funcas Europe director. And Raymond is talking to us, I assume, from Madrid. Is that correct, Raymond? Yes, this is correct. Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So I, I wanted to ask you first, both of you, because you are both experts. You, you've been following Brexit for a while, and I think you can. You are well positioned to, to tell us about how are how is the EU and how is the UK digesting the fact that finally there is a new deal. Uh, a, a no deal Brexit was avoided. We've been talking about this for years, and now finally the, the time has come. January 2021, there is a new relationship, there is a new framework for two parties that they were together uh, for decades, and now they are ready for a new start. So, Jill, is the UK ready for this kind of new start? I think if I was to be totally honest, it's all become a bit of an anti-climax. Obviously, we had the deal with the EU unveiled on Christmas Eve. Uh, that was a sort of, you could say, a moment of political triumph for the prime minister here. He could trumpet his new deal, uh, a positive relationship with the EU, the coordination there with Commission President von der Leyen. Um, so that was all quite positive. He then, and this is in huge contrast, of course, to the parliamentary problems that uh, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson faced last year, getting the withdrawal agreements, or in 2019, getting the withdrawal agreements through. We then had this very, very short, quick debate in Parliament, which was recalled for a day on the 30th of December to enact the necessary legislation to allow the UK to ratify that. But one of the things is, Frankly, there's very little attention at the moment to Brexit and what the New Deal really means because we are totally preoccupied with coping with this new spike in the pandemic. Uh, the government is now having to resort to regular press conferences, had to recall Parliament again this week to approve new national lockdown. And we'd actually had a bit of a preview of chaos, one of the things people were saying was, how is this new agreement going to work in practice? The really dramatic scenes of lorry parks being used to get over the Channel uh, border when there was sort of, you know, the border closed, 
were really seen before Christmas when we had the France closing the border to the UK when the government identified this new variant of COVID. So I think Brexit is going to be a slow burn story. There's sense that this is a sort of dynamic new start to anything has been completely swamped over here by the, the pandemic taking center stage. Raymond, I guess for the EU, uh, the fact that we are uh, struggling with this pandemic and in the middle of this uh, biggest ever vaccination program in history, I think uh, uh, the attention to the New Deal is not exactly the, the same as if we didn't have this pandemic, right? Yes, yes. In a way, it is very similar to what Jill was uh, saying for the UK, is that, in fact, uh, uh, for Europeans and European governments, the main preoccupation now is to get out of the crisis, uh, both the health crisis and the economic crisis, and to do everything possible, first of all, to contain the third wave of contagions, which is well underway uh, in a number of countries, not least Spain, but also Germany, for example, France. I think I think it's very much widespread, um, and so I mean this is this is the main, clearly the main the main uh, preoccupation, and uh, of course uh, Brexit uh, is something which uh, has been noticed, and then I think it was I mean, it animated some of the Christmas discussions, uh, but uh, of course also there is re realization that the the process is not over. It's uh, in a way. Uh, some people expected, perhaps a bit ingeniously, that this would be, I mean, the, the a kind of agreement that would settle everything. And it clearly, despite the fact that it's a very heavy text, hundreds of pages, we're talking about the situation which is still going to evolve. A bit like what Rogel uh, was saying, that some areas have been clarified. I mean, there is going to be, I mean, tariffless, uh, zero tariff trade and uh, so possibility to trade in, in terms of uh, goods and services without without these kind of barriers, but there are other barriers that still exist, or new barriers that will be imposed, and uh, this will, will we will need some time both on the UK side and on the EU side to settle this to uh, really uh, make sure that we understand the different elements which are which are there, and I think Europeans are realizing that, and also um, I think. For Europe, a main preoccupation is not only the deal with the UK, but the deal with the, the Europeans themselves. So in other words, the EU understands that this is a very heavy shock to, to the EU, uh, such, a, such a country leaving the club. But of course, uh, the whole attention now has to be placed on the existing members, making sure that the EU delivers. Yeah, I think, um, Gio, following up on what Raymond is saying, that. Uh, this is, you know, there, there, there's work that needs to be done. You recently wrote an article and, and, and you, you said this is not an agreement that allows the UK to distance itself from the European Union. And I think you were you were referring to the fact that there's some institutional work to be done uh, after the agreement. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I think if you look at what the UK is addressing now, I think there are two things that really will uh, will set the agenda following on from the agreement. The first is actually one specifically here, which is about businesses coming to terms with what the agreement exactly means in terms of the new processes they have to navigate, both to move their goods into Europe, what it means for doing business with the EU, and also, of course, 
because of the Northern Ireland Protocol into Northern Ireland. And one of the things I think businesses and people who you know are used to doing business uh, in Europe are finding is that you know they have to read the small print, and the deal was done so late that they haven't really come to terms with what needs to be done. And I think that will be a story that will run in the background. You know, if you listened to a UK news bulletin today, that you know there were two or three stories of people encountering consequences they hadn't really anticipated and didn't come out in the way the government presented presented the deal. The Prime Minister said there are no this means there will be no non-tariff barriers as well as no tariff barriers people are discovering because of the rules of origin there are tariff barriers and of course you know it was never true frankly that there were no non-tariff barriers there are massive non-tariff barriers not least because the UK didn't really succeed in getting some of the simplifications it sought but I think the the other point so the those issues I think there's an interesting question about whether anything could happen in the partnership council or the joint committee on the Northern Ireland protocol to ease some of those I'm not sure that there's that much appetite for that in the EU which will probably remind the UK that Brexit meant Brexit but I think the other point is there is this huge big structure as Raymon was saying there are the issues that have been left unresolved uh, where the agreement contains a sort of timetable for future agreements on a whole range of areas that's clearly going to require work in both London and Brussels and then from Brussels with member states. But there are also the provisions that we have in the uh, in the new agreement where we don't really know what they mean. So if you look at all those level playing field provisions, the provisions designed to ensure fair competition, those were clearly highly contested. The UK is making a lot of the fact, and this is a very important win for the government, that it has got the right to diverge from EU regulation. Uh, and that is definitely true in theory. But what we don't know, and I think will only emerge over time when we see how the EU reacts to what the UK decides to do, is what will be the consequence? How long do we hold on to this free trade agreement? Uh, and how far can we, if you like, push the, that possibility for divergence? What will end up uh, being deemed to have an impact on trade or in other provisions, a material effect on trade? There are sort of different tests, different processes, and can end up with this great uh, rebalancing mechanism where either side can say that the agreement's not working for them. And I don't think at the moment we really have an idea of how this is going to work out in practice, whether the EU will think, well, actually, we push the UK far enough away from the single market that we can be relatively relaxed about areas of divergence. The UK has a huge, big new set of barriers to trading with the EU, uh, or whether the EU really is seeing almost any move by London to differentiate itself from the EU as something that will trigger uh, trigger those complex processes set out in the agreement. I think I think the process of uh, coming coming to terms to reality uh, is going to be tough for for businesses and consumers on both sides of the channel. I'm going to put a, a personal example because I I bought um, some champagne glasses before Christmas and I was very excited to cheer with them for the new year. Well. 
first they were I, I bought them in a UK uh, website and and the glasses first were were delayed and then today I received a notification from UPS saying that I need to pay 50 euros for uh, a import fees and this 50 euros is the same amount that the glasses are worth it <laughs> so so imagine <laughs> imagine if this is a it, this is a huge this is a huge barrier for trade and i i assume this is a situation that is affecting many consumers and many businesses in both sides of the channel and adaptation is going to be economically very challenging because these are these are imagine for this operation this is a hundred percent cost on top of the price of purchase so Raymond, how do you think businesses in europe and consumers are are going to adapt to this new new reality yes i think uh, first of all i am sorry about that <laughs> i hope <laughs> i hope they were cheap enough to justify the, the fee i am surprised that such a fee would be imposed but nevertheless or, or import tie would be imposed but i think this is probably um, symbolic uh, of, of something which is going to multiply which is lots of uh, issues concerning the application of the agreement. I think we need a time, probably months, to settle this, to ensure that the supply chains continue to function and that the somehow the formalities, uh, the uh, custom formalities are uh, swift enough in order to facilitate trade. Of course, there will be still an impact on trade on both sides. The shock will be obviously bigger for the UK economy than for the EU economy. Uh, but I think that it is what your experience is significant, what may happen, especially if the UK, as is the intention, of course, of the UK government, starts to have side agreements with different partners. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, will come the issue of what happens if um, somehow the agreement with the third party um, allows the uh, trade on certain terms, which are different from the terms uh, upon which EU has agreements with, uh, with that partner, that third partner. Uh, and so this is one this is one specific issue which we would have to be clarified. Another area which is going to be important, and I think there's a lot, there was a lot of discussion in, in EU, is about taxes or labor issues. Um, I think uh, on, on labor issues, I, I suppose, now, always the UK had a different type of labor legislation, but after all, it still has a, a number of rules which are quite consistent with the EU. And the same for social security or social protection. We must have an extensive social protection system and a lively, um, let's say, um, social dialogue system uh, with lots of uh, social partners intervening. And so I, I suppose that I would not expect such a big divergence, but it's possible. Uh, that uh, somehow uh, for specific areas, for specific uh, uh, sectors, there may be rules established in terms of social issues or tax issues, uh, which are not necessarily con consistent, not perceived as being consistent with the EU rules. And this was, uh, I mean, a concession which was, was given in a way by the EU side, which was that such, a, such di divergences would not be settled by the European Court of Justice, it would be um, another another instance. But this again, I mean, this will happen at some point, and we will have to see what kind of uh, uh, dispute settlement mechanism will be established in order to settle those issues, for example, in terms of taxes or, or labor. Uh, 
um, one can add also the issue of the currency itself. I mean, I mean, as you know, I mean, the UK anyway was not part of the euro, but after all, it was in the EU. So somehow there was some sort of orderly uh, evolution of the different exchange rates. But being outside of the EU, we don't know how this will go. These are all issues that we need to be settled. I may also add the question of financial services. Uh, here, I must say, it's, it's very clear whether the UK will manage to retain many of the financial services that it performed on behalf of EU members. Uh, I, I doubt that will be the case, but nevertheless, there may be a, a kind of uh, establishment of certain financial companies which are in the UK, they may have branches in the EU and may continue to operate. Uh, we don't know how the financial market will evolve in the absence of a financial passport, which is the reality of the present argument. So many unknowns, uh, and we will need time to settle those. I wanted to move on a bit and, and ask Jill about something that I think it's I think it's it's uh, it's interesting and it's uh, it's not such an um, a short short term issue, but a rather medium term, long term issue. And it, this is about Scotland and and the integrity of the UK. Uh, we know that there are elections in Scotland in a few months. And there are some expectations there that the SNP will campaign for another uh, referendum. And they, uh, I think there are some promises to come back to Europe. And, and do you think this is, how concerning is this for, for the integrity of the UK? And, and how ready is uh, Boris Johnson to, to prevent uh, a second referendum? I think people do think this is going to actually be the issue that's going to dominate politics over here when... Uh, when, in a sense, we get through the acute phase of the pandemic. Um, it looks as though the Scottish uh, National Party may get an outright majority in the Scottish Parliament in the elections in May. They're doing very well in the polls, and they will clearly take that as a mandate to request another referendum. Uh, under, the UK, under UK law, under the devolution settlement, the ability to hold a referendum is reserved to the UK Parliament. So the Scots cannot, uh, under their own authority, hold a legal referendum. And we know that Nicola Sturgeon, at least the First Minister of Scotland, is very keen to avoid what is seen in Scotland as a Catalonia situation, to avoid holding an illegal referendum. So she will pressurise the Prime Minister for what is called a Section 30 order, which would transfer that power that's uh, to Scotland to hold a referendum, which is what David Cameron did uh, with Alex Salmond back in, I think, 2011, 2012, under the Edinburgh Agreement. So there would undoubtedly be pressure. At the moment, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is saying that he will resist. And I think the big question mark is how long can he resist? He went on to into TV studios on Sunday and was asked when did he think the time might be for another referendum on Scotland, and he pointed to the 40-year gap between the UK's first referendum on EU membership and the second one and suggested that might be the appropriate sort of time interval, which would obviously take us to, uh, to sort of 2050-something. So that's not what the Scottish National Party wants. How long that becomes possible and whether that, in a sense, uh, is actually politically the wise tactics, I think, will be a judgment the Prime Minister will have to make. One of the problems for the Prime Minister is that Brexit opened up one divide in Scotland. It sort of, if you like, 
turbocharged the sense that Scotland was being taken out of the EU and that the promises made in the 2014 referendum that the way of guaranteeing Scotland's long-term place in the EU was by staying part of the UK. It was felt that that obviously undid that. Scotland is now pointing very much at the relative treatment of its views on Brexit with the way in which the EU treated the concerns of Ireland and saying that uh, the EU is good at looking after the interests of small member states, whereas the UK government rides absolutely roughshod over the interests of its constituent nations. You have to say the Scots, though obviously the situation is very different, the Scots do have a bit of a point there. Uh, they point to the Northern Ireland Protocol and say this is very much the sort of deal we were keen to have. We floated this, but you negotiated this for Northern Ireland, but not for Scotland. Um, slightly ignoring the point that the Northern Irish parties all hate the Northern Ireland Protocol, but it's a different matter. We voted against it. Um, so I think there's sort of lots of lots of potential tensions, and this I think will dominate Parliament. One of the problems for the Prime Minister is that in the view of Scots, he has managed COVID much less competently than Nicola Sturgeon, the Scottish First Minister. She's undoubtedly communicated much better, even if substantively she's not done very much different and made many of the same mistakes as the UK government has, for example, on school exams and things like that. Uh, but she has communicated much better. So she has retained public trust in a way in which the Prime Minister has failed. And the Prime Minister himself is very badly regarded in Scotland. He represents uh, a certain, certain type of Englishness that actually plays quite well in England, surprisingly even in the north of England, so miles away from the playing fields of Eton, but goes down really badly in Scotland. So one of the huge big question marks is who can be a plausible leader of the campaign to retain the union and is there a sort of vision for the union last time in 2014 it was sort of you know the economic implications that eventually sort of frightened the scots back into staying one of the real problems for the brexit supporters is that uh, every argument they made about why it was sensible to leave the eu can be replayed uh, almost with a sort of you know control out, delete on and find and replace uh, as the case for Scotland leaving the UK. And it's hugely difficult to be a Brexiteer who can make the case for Scotland staying in the union on economic grounds. Very interesting. And I think then the next months are going to be very, uh, very interesting to follow what's what's going on uh, up north in the UK. Uh, but I, um, as you know, I want to ask you about the, the room for cooperation between the EU and the UK. But before that, I, I'm, I'm very tempted to ask Raymond uh, on this same topic, but looking into the EU, because um, some years ago we saw Brexit and, and many observers thought this was the beginning of the end. Brexit was the first piece of this structure that was falling apart and other Brexits would, would follow. Marine Le Pen was about to win in France. Um, in, uh, in Italy, um, we, we got the, the populist and the right-wing in government. Uh, Poland and Hungary has, have been for a while challenging uh, Brussels in a number of ways. So the integrity, what's, this, the, the, what's the status for the integrity of the EU after these this years and with a new reality now in place with, with, with post-Brexit scenario, Raymond? 
Yeah, it's kind of, I think you're right to to point this out. That uh, I mean, the Brexit uh, is is one thing, but I think there was, uh, let's say, similar phenomena going on in different parts of of Europe with uh, a, num a number of uh, parties, political parties, or even entire countries challenging uh, the main thrust of uh, the integration process. And uh, I think that's that's uh, that's very important. I think that's why I was saying that uh, perhaps the, the top priority for the EU at the moment is to actually ensure that uh, the European citizens uh, perceive that the European integration goes in their own interest. And uh, that concretely means uh, that uh, the, uh, the first test would be the recovery from the COVID crisis. Uh, the EU, I think, is probably the case that perhaps one of the few positive side effects of Brexit has been to ensure that Europe would uh, kind of change a little bit its approach, its approach to crisis management. I think it's probably many people, I don't know, would probably agree that uh, the, what, what was agreed uh, last year with the European Recovery Fund, um, funded with uh, Eurobonds in the end, because that would be it, uh, it's something which was unthinkable uh, a few years ago, before Brexit, for example, and even uh, a couple of years ago before the crisis. So I think there has been some change in the approach in Europe, a move away from uh, a number of policies, very rigid kind of policy rules, which were not really understood and certainly did not seem to bring sufficient benefits to the different countries. And I think it's something which uh, kind of exacerbated polarization within European countries. And I think there has been a change there. Uh, and so a first test of whether uh, those uh, movements, uh, Eurosceptical uh, movements, can be contained uh, will be whether uh, the EU manages to have a successful crisis response. So European Recovery Fund is one of the elements. The European Central Bank itself has put a lot of money into this. Uh, and the, I mean, it can, can be safely asserted that never in the history of uh, recent history of Europe, we have seen so, such a combination of European-wide policies in order to get out of the crisis. So I think this is one first element. The other is to talk about things that concretely preoccupy the Europeans, uh, such as environment issues, um, a different approach towards um, China. And I think this is an area of possible uh, common interest with the, with the UK after Brexit, so that uh, I mean, the, before you could say the EU, the approach vis-à-vis -vis China was to have, I mean, perhaps summarizing the extreme, to have asymmetric trade liberalization vis-à-vis -vis China, uh, with Chinese government still subsidizing many sectors, and on the con uh, on the other side, on the European side, simply opening boundaries to Chinese goods and services uh, very widely. And I think they, this is, uh, I mean, we have seen some of the impacts, or at least perceived impacts of this. Uh, uh, it's part of the problem, in a way, in the United States as well, and, and uh, what may explain the Trump phenomenon in the United States. But certainly in Europe, this is something which there's, there's a change also in the approach towards um, uh, international trade or technology, having a bit of a more proactive approach at the European level in order to avoid the phenomenon you're, you're mentioning, uh, Carlos.
I think uh, I I think I think yes. Uh, one of the big things, the big the UK is president of the G7 this year. Obviously, France and Germany and Italy are all fellow G7 members. So I think that's an important forum for cooperation with European countries, if not institutionally with the EU. But I think particularly now with the Biden administration about to be inaugurated in the US, there's quite a lot of potential momentum towards a successful COP26. The UK is hosting that. It's the sort of joint chairs with the Italians. So that's an obvious place for European cooperation. The Italians are having the pre-meeting for the COP. And I think that's an area where if you look at all the sort of blocks around the world, the UK and the EU have always had the sort of closest common approach on climate. Uh, it's important to work together, but I think the sort of announcement, the Biden administration and the Chinese announcement on net zero by 2060, give it a sort of degree of momentum you might not have expected a few months ago. And I think that's going to be very important for the British government to be able to show that its global Britain agenda, something we hear a lot about over here, can actually work very productively going forward. I think it's quite interesting on other areas that uh, the UK is still uh, looking to stay in the Horizon Europe program. It's very keen, I think, to maintain scientific collaboration. That I think is an important element. And I think that, uh, that the environment is going to be an area where we will see, see sort of biggest potential. I think on an issue by issue basis, I think we will see that coming up to see where the UK can ally with Europe. And we saw that actually in, in the last few years, we've been going through this very fractious sort of Brexit process that on issues like the Iran nuclear deal, you know, some of the sanctions stuff, there was quite a lot of coordination with, uh, with major European players as well. I think one of the things though that the government will feel here is it will institutionally uh, find it easier to cooperate with the governments of Germany and France and Italy, Spain, uh, than with the EU institutions per se. It's uh, it, it just, I think, will be investing a lot more. It's upgrading its embassies and its representation in most EU countries. Interestingly, and I think mistakenly, it seems to be running down its representation in Brussels. I think that will actually be a temporary move because I think when it looks at its need to service all that architecture contained in the trade and cooperation agreement, it will realize that actually it needs a lot of people still in Brussels. But this is, this is very, it's a bit risky, Jill, because this attempt to use the bilateral uh, approach was attempted during the Brexit negotiations and it proved a bit pointless in the I, end. I think it's very different though. I think it's very different where the EU 27 was very obviously unified uh, and very determined to maintain its unity and actually impressively maintained its unity through the negotiations. And frankly, leaders didn't want to deal with that. But on the foreign policy stage, EU cooperation is in some senses much less developed so you've actually seen on things like uh, in those areas where that there is more more scope i think for some degree of bilateral 
bilateral, multilateral cooperation, maybe with the EU as one of the players there. But it was very notable. I mean, it's one of the things that Michel Barnier always raised, and a difference, I think, between the political agreement, uh, political declaration, and also the approach Theresa May's government might have taken, was that this government was very explicit. Uh, never actually was questioned in much detail about why, but it was very explicit that it didn't want a chapter about foreign policy or defence cooperation in the agreement. I mean, other players, the UK will remain a very big player in NATO. Uh, we're actually you know, maintaining our defence spending. So that's another forum where there will be cooperation with European partners, though not within the EU frameworks. But I think over time, these will evolve. And I think one of the hopes is that the TCA itself doesn't become a source of tension that gets in the way of collaborating on these, if you like, non-TCA issues. And that we can actually, you know, in a sense, get over our problems about, uh, about the Commission and its role, which has provided some of the debate about Brexit. But I, I think one of the other things for Europe to reflect on, based on what Ramon was saying, is whether actually Europe is seeing some benefits of not having an awkward member state at the table, which might have had reservations about the scale of the European Recovery Fund or European joint efforts in some of the COVID response. I think, you know, that... The UK provided useful grit, but I think there were some points at which it also provided slightly frustrating grit in other member states. And maybe at some point, when we both think strategically about where we are, uh, we can put this sort of you know, long-term relationship onto a productively positive basis. I think that's what we should all be working towards. Hopefully, hopefully, yes. And uh, I think I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna let's close this with uh, with those, that positive hope of Jill that I share as well. And, and, and I'm sure Raymond shares as well. And we're looking forward for a positive um, new relationship. Yes, I would like to add to this, to what Jill said, that uh, I completely agree on the environment. I think that's an obvious area of conversion. And very concretely, uh, when there is a carbon tax, uh, I mean, there, there are proposals for carbon tax in the EU, which is, would, be, would entail border tax as well. And I think that's that's a very concrete area where maybe uh, some uh, cooperation would be could be envisaged uh, between the two the two the, the bloc and, and and the UK. Uh, but I think more generally, I, I think we are on the eve of a, and there is a need for a major overhaul of the multilateral system. Uh, I think it can be safely asserted that uh, it simply needs very, at least very deep reform. Uh, one can see that very clearly in the case of the WTO, which uh, doesn't function. It's this resettlement mechanism is, is simply is simply has ceased to function. Uh, and and more generally, I think there is a need to redefine rules of the game with a better integration of the environment, tax and social issues into the mainstream, more economic type of uh, multilateral agreements. Jean uh, mentioned the G8 or the G7, but I think. The G20 would be an obvious forum. I could myself participate uh, in, in previous life in G20 meetings, and I could see that already then the UK had a, a very special voice in the G20, 
not necessarily in full harmony with uh, what the, the representatives of the European Commission, which also participates in the G20, and of course, Germany, France, Italy, and as an observer, Spain, uh, would, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it had special voice, but uh, in, the, in, the, in the very end, the basic principles didn't seem to me at the time very different from the, what the EU would defend in terms of a multilateral system. Uh, which, in other words, uh, consists in putting roots of the game to to globalization. I think that's another obvious area of co cooperation, probably on a case-by-case -case basis, but it needs to be rebuilt. And now with the new presidency in the U.S., it is to be hoped that the new impetus will be given to this. Yes, it is to be hoped that the new um, presidency in the U.S. will bring uh, a new transatlantic uh, relationship and it will be interesting to see how the, how how the UK, the EU, and 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 Washington can can cooperate together with this uh, new scenario after a, a deal uh, with Brexit and a new new president in the White House, quite a different president. But I think we're running. I was just I was just going to say I think I think this may be a quite interesting thing to see how it develops the new wake up call, because I think uh, the Biden administration will find itself naturally relying, um, building relationships first with the European bloc, the EU, uh, and the big member states. And the sort of UK has always prided itself on its special relationship and acting as a bridge between the US and the EU. <laughs> it might be, uh, might be quite interesting to see how that, uh, how that sort of, if you like, slightly unbalanced triangle works in the future it might be quite an interesting wake-up call to um, some of the UK's <laughs> ambitions uh, in the short run. Indeed. All right. Uh, I want to thank you both, uh, Raymond Torres, Funkas Europe Director, and, and, and Jill Ruter, who covers Brexit at UK in a changing Europe. So thank you both. And I think this is an issue we're going to... We have so much to talk about, and I'll be happy to to, to uh, talk to you again in the next months. It's been very interesting and uh, have a nice day. Thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers to talk about Europe's economic and policy related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe and Agenda Publica initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen and the production of this podcast is carried out by Franco de Ledone. Thank you all.